Hello and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Mooney Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do every two weeks. So today our topic is Mexico. Mexico, the beautiful, tumultuous, enormous, embattled country that's so close to our hearts, whether you're a tourist or whether you're a businessman or whether you're just a journalist, Mexico has always captured everybody's imagination. We'll be joined later by Jorge Guajardo, a former Mexican diplomat and a global savant to talk about what we're calling the Mexico paradox. We'll explain what we mean in a minute, but suffice it to say that it's a country riddled by contradictions. Contradiction is a perfect word, Peter. Let's start with one of many big ones. So shortly after his election, three years ago, President López Obrador, known as AMLO, declared war on Mexico's private sector. And despite that, and despite a controversial management of COVID, somehow Mexico's economic situation clipped on at a healthy 4.8%. And even today, there's demonstrated resilience of the economy, although there are warning signs ahead. So Mexico, so connected to the U.S. economy, is expected to slow considerably this year as tight monetary conditions could decrease domestic demand and slower U.S. growth will definitely affect Mexican manufacturing exports. Yeah, Mooney, like like you said, that's just the beginning of the paradoxes because there's this big paradox of Mexican tourism. It's one of the world's most popular tourist destinations, boasting a 22% increase in visitors in 2022 compared to 2021. Over 22 million tourists, lots of 22s, came to Mexico annually. And all of that is happening despite travel advisory warnings of drugs and crime at popular destinations such as Cancun and Playa del Carmen. Even medical tourism is booming in recent years as Americans head south for plastic surgery, dental work, and other medical procedures, which are much cheaper in Mexico, notwithstanding headlines like patients are being kidnapped, patients are being killed, or American tourists shot in the legs, which are so concerning, but it doesn't seem to stop anybody from going to Mexico. Well, despite the travel advisories, it was packed this spring break. But let's talk about the trade and investment front, another paradox. Despite the government's evident protectionist streak, the USMCA, former NAFTA, agreement was successfully renegotiated with Canada and the U.S. in a landmark example of new generation agreements. And the business-unfriendly president really enjoys popularity levels of over 60%. That number is after dropping significantly. And it's definitely a number that any world leader would love to have, especially three years in. His numbers were significantly higher before, but there have been some recent protests against AMLO's electoral law reform. So even if after this threat to democracy what pe- that people are really mad at, attacks on, attacking a very well-loved institution, his popularity remains pretty strong. Yeah, it's really unbelievable. And he's seen Mooney as this you know, incredible Democrat, a person that's inclusive and brings in sort of the poorer sectors, even though you know his this attack on the electoral system is about as anti-democratic as one can find, certainly as much as it is in Israel or other places where the electoral system is attacked. So, But one last 
paradox before we ask Taya for her thoughts is that we can't talk about Mexico without thinking of the border with the United States and the hope and frustration it represents for migrants that cross the border from so many countries. As we record this, the recent fire at an immigration facility in Ciudad Juarez killed dozens of migrants. One more tragic example of the clashes between migrants and authorities in detention centers. And these incidents, along with the fentanyl issue are creating tremendous rifts between the U.S. and Mexico, although none of these rifts, another paradox, seem to be showing much because the U.S. depends on Mexico to contain immigration. And so you have this paradox of this highly problematic country right on the U.S. border, and you'd expect there to be sort of many tensions, but there actually aren't many tensions because the U.S. doesn't want to cross Mexico on anything that has to do with immigration. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So let's talk immigration, right? When you think of U.S.-Mexico relations, your mind really immediately goes to immigration, especially if you're on the U.S. side. And with good reason, Mexicans remain the largest group of immigrants in the United States, accounting for about 24% of the 45 million foreign-born residents in the U.S. And Mexicans also account for the largest group of unauthorized immigrants, about 48%, so about half of the total estimated 11 million people, according to estimates from the Migration Policy Institute. But it's not just because of Mexican immigrants that we think of immigration when we think of Mexico. It's because Mexico is the only country, of course, on the U.S.'s southern border. All migrants that are coming from Central or South America have to pass through Mexico. And especially in recent years, that's become a really disputed issue Migrant border crossings in the fiscal year of 2022 topped 2.8 million, which broke a previous record. So the 2022 numbers were really driven in part by increases in the numbers of Venezuelans, of Cubans, of Nicaraguans making the trek north. And Mexico's immigration policy has really been a result of López Obrador's eagerness to gain favor with the United States. And it started with the so-called Title 42, which is a Trump-era policy that's been continued under President Biden. And it's a law that allows the U.S., to expel migrants based on health reasons, so pandemic reasons, and they're still using it today. So Mexico has tried to make life really hard for migrants that are are seeking to cross the border, and tens of thousands of army troops and National Guard officers are, are trying to retain migrants, and AMLO has allowed the U.S. to return migrants from Venezuela, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Cuba back to Mexico. So this is a so-called remain in Mexico policy, which forces migrants that are seeking asylum in the United States to remain in Mexico until their U.S. immigration court date, which can take many months or even years. And the program was widely criticized by human rights organizations because it exposes migrants to violence in Mexico, some of which you guys talked about earlier, which we'll talk more with Jorge. And, you know, they're they're waiting processing in these very, very unsafe areas. So here's my take. Despite this policy of returning migrants who have nowhere to go, or the recent fire that happened at a migrant detention center under AMLA's rule, 
I'm going to say one thing I, I agree with, which is that the U.S. needs to spend more money and more resources on development in Central and South America, because we often talk about these pull factors that migrants have, right? They want, they seek economic opportunity, a better life for their children in the United States. To some degree, we talk about the violence and persecution. They are fleeing uh, the push factors, but I don't think we talk enough about the push factors. And Many Central and South American countries have deep problems, whether it's politically or economically or both. And, you know, there's multiple reasons, of course, for that, for these push factors. Partly it's, you know, the U.S. is very aggressive meddling during the 20th century, which is not, not so long ago, where it instigated coups and regime changes all across South America or Central America. And the drug trade, of course, which has caused so much violence in these countries. And, and then, of course, let's not forget all the corrupt politicians and the mismanagement of resources. So lots of both push and pull factors that I, I think we should consider when we talk about immigration. So as always, I'd love to hear what you think. Tweet at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Taya, thanks for that. I think that's a, a, a super interesting analysis of the sort of continuing precariousness of the immigration issue. So let's hear from our guest, my friend of many decades, Jorge Guajardo. Jorge is a partner at Denton's Global Advisors, formerly a senior director at McClarty Associates. He was Mexico's longtime ambassador to China, during which he visited every single Chinese province and established close relations with China's business community. He served as consul general for Mexico in Texas and was communications director and press secretary for the governor of the Mexican state of Nuevo León. Jorge has been involved in presidential campaigns and electoral politics in Mexico. Jorge, we introduced you earlier as the global savant. I'm so glad to welcome you to Altamar. Well, it's nice to be here in any category that includes the word savant next to it. So thank you. So Jorge, as we prepared this podcast, we realized that no matter what angle you take when talking about Mexico, you find a country of contrast, contradictions, and paradox. And, and we've identified a few of those, but let's start with perhaps the biggest contradiction, which is the president himself. AMLO is, a, 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 to many, a, a mystery and an anomaly. He's supremely popular, yet everyone we talk to complains about him. Can you give us a snapshot, both as villain and savior? Like, what's his, why, do you, why is he so popular? What Can you explain his appeal? Okay, the first thing I, I tell people when I try to explain uh, Mexican President López Obrador to them is that think of Donald Trump. They're identical creatures. They're one like the other. They're, they're very good at reading uh, the winds. They're very good at knowing what is popular and what is not. They care about power more than good government. And they ride the popularity wave towards uh, achieving their goal of power, and they do it well. So he he's very popular among his base, not unlike President Trump being popular among his base. Has he been good for the country, his government? I would say no, he hasn't. Uh, but Good government doesn't necessarily mean popularity, and popularity in a president doesn't necessarily mean good government. So that is a contradiction there. But yet, you know, even though he seems to fall in the polls, as Mooney said earlier, you know, he's still at 60% 
And so there, there must be more than just his base. I mean, 60% is a very large number. Again, uh, so the thing about a populist is a populist cares about popularity. A populist cares about polls. Uh, and again, and, I, and I'm sorry, but this is going to be a constant theme. And I'll refer you back to President Trump, how he was always citing tr- uh, polls, how he stood on polls, how he was being uh, ratings, etc. They're good at being popular. Uh, and AMLO is certainly popular in great parts of Mexico. He won by a huge landslide. He is popular. Uh, again, being popular doesn't make you a good president. And being a good president doesn't make you popular necessarily. So a populist seeks popularity. AMLO is popular. Let's move to the economy. So there are two versions of the economy. Mexico is doing really well. And the other version is Mexico is in dire straits. What's the real answer? I I think Mexico is doing well. It could be doing much better, but I think Mexico is doing well. Uh, Mexico is the 15th largest economy in the world. It has a sound and solid private sector. It is not a, a commodity exporting country. It is not necessarily a rentist-seeking country that is widely controlled by government. Mexico has a pretty solid manufacturing base, and for that reason, Mexico's economy is doing well. Now, it is growing at about 1.5% this year. I think we could be growing at a much faster rate if we guaranteed foreign investors that their contracts would be honored in Mexico, which currently is an issue. If we could focus more on security, which has been a detractor in terms of foreign investment in Mexico, and also if we guaranteed energy, electricity supply in particular, because of uh, President López Obrador, nationalist energy policies, he believes that energy should be only provided by the Mexican government, by the, uh, by the public sector. And that has acted sort of like a bottleneck in terms of foreign investment getting the energy they need, the electricity they need in order to grow. So so those have been issues putting a lid on our grow growth. Nevertheless, we are growing, and I think the Mexican economy overall is doing well. You, you mentioned the private sector a number of times, so let's talk a little bit about business and trade. The The Mexican private sector, as you said, it's a, it's a force unto itself, uh, and a lot of times it's been a force unto itself, didn't matter who was in government. This president is very openly anti-business, and you've been in both government and the private sector. Tell us a little bit about the risks that Mexico's private sector has been facing over the past years, and what opportunities do you see in particular for the private sector in the future? So his rhetoric is anti-business. His actions aren't. He has not increased the, uh, the tax base uh, in the business community. He has not increased regulation. Uh, he has ensured that free trade continues. So in that sense, his rhetoric tends to be much more anti-business than his actions are. And I think the business community has taken the measure of that and they're Proceeding accordingly, it's still a good environment to operate in Mexico. There are sectors, however, that have been stymied, very particularly the energy sector and more particularly the renewable energy sector, which was a sector that was operated by the private sector due to a change in the constitution in the previous administration, the, the Peña Nieto administration. 
Eh, López Obrador has sought to backtrack on that constitutional amendment that allowed for private participation in the energy generation sector. And that has delayed Mexico's entry or increased rate of green energy production. That is going to be a huge opportunity for private business once President López Obrador leaves office in 18 months, regardless of who assumes the presidency after him, whether it's from his party or another party, there is pretty much consensus that Mexico needs to catch up on renewable energies. We've been wasting valuable time during his administration. So I think there's going to be sort of a mad rush to, to make up for wasted time on green energies. That's going to be a huge opportunity for the private sector in about 18 months. Jorge, first of all, I, I welcome you as a colleague. I'm very excited to be working with you. But back to the energy sector, is there any progress that can be made during AMLO's tenure? Or is this just kind of an expectation uh, situation where we have to wait for, for a new president for any type of progress to, to, um, to be tangible? I'm afraid there is little progress to, me, to be made by the private sector. The, the president has promoted few renewable energy projects, mostly by the government, Comisión Federal de Electricidad. And there has been few by the private sector. What would I be advising private sector companies now is to start positioning themselves now to start seeking areas of opportunity, partners, uh, supply chains, which is not an easy thing. The supply chain in the renewable energies, particularly in solar panels, has been a problem in the United States. Same, same applies for windmills. So I would say the opportunity right now is to start positioning themselves and wait for October 1st, 2024, when there's a new administration and, and a mad rush to catch up for, for wasted time. That's, that's true. Let's talk about tourism. Tourism and, and it fits very well in the topic of this podcast, which is the Mexican paradox, uh, because it's a thriving economic sector especially after COVID, the recovery was uh, very much led by tourism. It seems like everyone around the world wants to visit Mexico right now. And paradoxically, uh, it's uh, a tourist destination where security is a real issue and increasing. And we've read all, all year about widespread violence, kidnapping, gang wars. and But yet, we look at the images, despite all the U.S. Uh, travel advisories for the beaches, etc., and, uh, and the concerns about the medical tourism, it continues to be booming. How do you explain this? So, first of all, Muni, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I was also concerned every time I read the news about a crime in Mexico and how that might affect tourism. It has not yet. So the one thing to know about crime in Mexico in general, particularly as pertains to organized crime, which is the one uh, we tend to read more outside of Mexico, is that organized crime so far has been happening mostly among members of organized crime. It's uh, It has not targeted other communities, particularly the tourist community. There was a very unfortunate incident uh, about a month ago where four Americans who were in Mexico seeking medical tourism, as you will point out, uh, they were seeing some aesthetic surgery, were confused by organized crime members. They were kidnapped. Two of them were killed. Uh, that, that made the news all over the, the United States. And that was rather unfortunate. And the fact is that 
even the the criminals who committed these acts were so afraid about the wrath they may incur from foreign governments, particularly the United States, that they quickly apprehended and surrendered the the people responsible for these crimes. Now, does that mean that tourists shouldn't be concerned? Well, I think uh, what applies to Mexico applies to most anywhere in the anywhere in the world. Just be aware of your surroundings. Don't do anything stupid. Uh, go and have a good time. Don't go and deal in illicit substances. And in that case, you will be fine. But but I'd be lying if I don't tell you I'm concerned every day when I read the news that eventually it may reach a tipping point and people will start being afraid about going to Mexico. That's true. It might, there might be a, a lag, though, because it's it seems to be alive and kicking. I'm going to ask you a very irresponsible question. That's a, a privilege we have here in Altamar, and you can uh, approach it as much in the way that you want. Mexican politics is impossible to summarize in the time that we've given you to talk. But we are over halfway in AMLO's presidential term. What is the landscape? What does the future hold politically? So uh, we're actually entering the fourth quarter of uh, López Obrador's administration. And as much as I'd like to say we are reaching the waning days of Morena, uh, the fact is that is not the case. Uh, Morena, the president's party, keeps winning gubernatorial races at a higher rate than the opposition. The opposition is name it, in disarray. <laughs> there, there is no opposition figure that raises the hopes and expectations of people that we could see winning an election so far. I must say that a lot of new entrants that are not the traditional political uh, participants are joining the presidential field. Uh, just recently, we heard, for instance, of Jose Angel Gurria, who used to be the secretary general of the OECD, not a traditional politician, jump into the fray and say he was seeking the presidency. That doesn't mean I'm saying he's going to win. I'm just saying that new new faces are stepping forward. And I think that's always good in a country like Mexico, where people are sort of fed up with uh, politics as usual. And I would add that uh, the, pres the president is also undermining a lot of the democratic institutions in Mexico sort of to guarantee that his party will win uh, the, the presidency. So if I were a gambling uh, person, I would say most likely someone from his party will win the presidency. But regardless of who that person may be, there are three leading contenders. None of them, I would say, are going to be as anti-business or as anti-renewable energy or anti-environment as the current president is. So anywhere we go from here will be an improvement. Jorge, just switching geographies a little bit. I mean, you were ambassador in China for many years, and you must be loving all this talk about firms relocating from China to Mexico and and how the sort of the the bastion for business that China has been is beginning to wane. How how much actual we'll call it friendshoring, call it nearshoring, has taken place since COVID? A lot, a lot. Uh, there is huge amounts of uh, foreign investment coming into Mexico, not necessarily for the reasons one reads, which are French shoring or seeking safe haven. It's mostly for logistical reasons. As you remember, during the COVID uh, pandemic, Long Beach was saturated and a lot of companies were, had trouble importing from Asia. So you have seen a lot of increased capacity in Mexico, but that doesn't necessarily mean that companies are moving out of China and into Mexico. It's just that companies are increasing their capacity in Mexico 
And in a few cases, uh, some Chinese companies are moving to Mexico, but that's mostly anecdotal. We have some furniture uh, manufacturers, home appliance manufacturers, but it's still in the anecdotal stage. What you see a lot of Mexi in Mexico right now is companies increasing their production that they would otherwise probably have increased in China. Now they're doing so in Mexico, but that doesn't mean they're moving out of China into Mexico. They're just increasing their production in Mexico as opposed to increasing it in China. Do you expect that there will be more companies moving from China to Mexico? Again, I think the companies that move out of China move into the Southeast Asia neighborhood. They either go to Indonesia, they go to Thailand, uh, Vietnam, India. The ones that move to Mexico are ones that would probably grow in China going forward and now are having second thoughts. But nobody, in my experience, who's currently manufacturing in China is saying, let's get out of China and go into Mexico. Again, those stay in Southeast Asia. But a lot of companies that would otherwise grow in China are saying, let's just stay closer to home. Again, logistics is a big play for this. More than the tariffs, it's logistics. It's you want to have uh, your supply chain closer to home, not just for geopolitical reasons, but just for logistical reasons, because uh, Long Beach is saturated and you cannot afford to have the delays that we experienced in the past. So, Jorge, we can't talk about U.S.-Mexico unless we talk about immigration. So, as you know, this issue of immigration is a huge problem for both the U.S. and for Mexico. And, you know, like in Turkey um, with Erdogan, with Europe, AMLO seems to be holding the U.S. sort of hostage on this issue. And, you know, he's he's in charge of this immigration spigot. And, you know, in exchange, both the Trump and Biden administrations have kept their criticism of, of Mexico pretty quiet. So how long do you expect AMLO to have this advantage over the U.S.? Uh, so so first of all, I, I'd start by phrasing or, or giving context. I don't think it's a huge problem for the United States. I, I think it's made to appear as a huge problem for the United States, but I don't think, in fact, immigration numbers are down substantially than from their historical records. Now, how long will uh, Lopez Obrador have the advantage in this relationship? As long as the Republicans keep giving it to him in the United States. As long as the Republican Party keeps convincing people that there are immigration waves, surges, or all these other words that you hear in the press coming into the United States, Lopez Obrador will have the advantage in offering to be the wall, in offering to be the one who stops them in Mexico. If the Republicans uh, did not make immigration that be-all, end-all, of political survival in the United States, I think Lopez Obrador would lose political clout in Mexico's bilateral relationship with the United States, probably then having to focus on other issues like containing the fentanyl crisis instead of just focusing on, on immigration, which he has played masterfully. So I want to ask you about fentanyl in particular. You just mentioned it, you know, drug trade has, has always been a historical issue, um, you know, going through Mexico, but fentanyl is, is a little more recent and, and the crisis that's happening. Will there be some backlash, do you expect? So, yes. I, unfortunately, you see the Overton window moving, and, and, and that's something we've all become used to during the Trump years, which is the famous Overton window moving uh, widely. And now you read about now candidate Trump asking his uh, advisors for plans to for military incursions into Mexico, you, you start hearing Republican talking points about sending in the troops to Mexico to fight the fentanyl crisis. So that's moving the 
Overton window. And that's the backlash you, you're talking about. Uh, do, do I think it's going to happen? Not soon. Hopefully not ever. But clearly there is a strong concern about the lack of action on the Mexican side in fighting this scourge. A lot of it has to do with China as well. As you know, uh, most of the precursors come in from China. In fact, when I arrived in China in 2007, my very first task was to start asking the Chinese government for their help in stopping the shipments of precursors into Mexico. It They never heeded uh, our ask. And it became to the point that my president then asked every single cabinet minister, regardless of their portfolio, whether they be agricultural, tourism, finance, economy, anyone who went to China had explicit instructions from the president to start every meeting by asking for the cooperation of the Chinese government to stop the shipment of uh, precursors into Mexico. Then the Chinese government would always say that that was a problem for Mexican customs, not for them to control. It seems that they are still in that mindset. As long as that continues to be the case, I'm afraid fentanyl will still be coming into the United States through Mexico. And it's something that we have to address as a region, not just Mexico alone. Let's let's dig down a little bit more on the U.S.-Mexico relationship, which um, Octavio Paz described so eloquently as being too close. Um, across the the decades, it continues to be contentious, and the two countries are codependent. Why does this relationship, aside from the size of the border and the size of the economy, First of all, the many things don't change if there's regime changes in one in one country or the other. It just they're shades of the same kind of uh, paradoxical relationship. Is it still a net positive for those countries, for both countries? The relationship is definitely a net positive for both countries. I think uh, the relationship is also a net positive for one-party systems. And let me explain myself. So for 70 years, the previous single-party system, the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI, sort of wrapped itself in the Mexican flag as the ones to stand standing up to the U.S. aggressors. And stoking nationalism was a, reason, was a way they managed to stay in power for 70 years. They were standing up to the U.S. aggressors. And then we entered the area of free trade, of cooperation, of collaboration, Things started improving, but clearly nobody was benefiting from any of that. So along comes Lopez Obrador, who comes from the previous school of thought of the nationalist, staying power, single party system. And he goes back to rallying the nationalist flag and saying he is once again standing up to the United States. He says he's cozying up to the leftist leaders in Latin America, refuses to come to the summit of the of the Americas in, in the United States and, and starts using this rhetoric that the U.S., again, is an aggressor. Every morning he has a press conference where he criticizes uh, U.S. legislators and mentions them by name. And again, he's sort of wrapping himself in the Mexican flag, defending us against uh, the U.S. aggressor. So politically, it plays very well for him. Uh, and unfortunately, that can get out of hand. Nevertheless, no doubt the bilateral relationship is a net positive for both sides, and I think nobody will dispute that. 
So you've been really great about cooperating with us with this round the world or round Mexico uh, podcast. And thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to end with um, a, a question to your, to your gut, to your gut feeling. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about Mexico in the next five years? I am optimistic after the next 18 months. I am very pessimistic for the next 18 months for the simple reason that I, again, I'm going to end as I started comparing President Lopez Obrador with President Trump. And we know that as they start losing power, they have this instinct to burn down the country. Uh, that is my concern. You, we know how the Trump presidency ended in the United States. My concern is that the same will happen in Mexico. So I would be concerned, worried about the next 18 months, extremely optimistic thereafter. Jorge Guajardo, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. So Peter, I, I come I, from this interview thinking that even our guest is a Mexican paradox. And, and his analysis of the topics that we covered, which was you know, from tourism to the economy, they always have two sides. And I, I believe that this is something that has happened in Mexico so many years. I blame a lot of it to the relationship with the U.S. that has shaped the country, especially, you know, more and more recently. Um, but also the, the, the history of Mexico. Um, and, and I believe that the paradox is here to stay. You know, where, where the paradox hits me most, I, I, at the, it, it's really good that you sort of introduced the issue this way, Muni, because I think it's true. I mean, you know, you you hear Jorge's criticism of AMLO, but at the same time, it's laced with a reluctant sense of admiration because, you know, he handles the U.S. masterfully. He maintains his popularity masterfully. He uh, is able to sort of be able to, you know, do that counterweight between security and open tourism and still Mexi making Mexico whether it's the beaches or the monuments or the people or the food, sexy, but at the same time, sort of even while security is going on, the security is, is demising, you know, AMLO seems to sort of maintain this, this balance. And so there's this reluctant admiration that is laced throughout um, a lot of what Jorge said that I think is, is exactly this Mexico paradox. No, I, I agree with, with what bo both of you said. I, and I, I agree very much that he's also a paradox himself too in, in the way he talks, right? Because it's like on the one hand, there's this, but on the other hand, um, there's that. And uh, you can see that in, in sort of every answer. And it just points to, you know, the complexity um, of the country. And, um, you know, I think as particularly on immigration, which is, you know, what I did the segment on today is, you know, I, I think immigration is an important um issue for both countries. And while I agree that, you know, it's very much a political football in the U.S. that's used to, you know, dramatize and, um, you know, sort of make this into an issue that, that it really isn't. I mean, I, I completely agree with, with his analysis on that. And uh, it was really great to, to hear more and uh, learn from him. So uh, you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us a lot. You can also sign up for our biweekly free newsletter where we give you an analysis of global trends beyond the podcast itself. And we will see you next time. <laughs>